Hi, welcome to the Arts Report for November 6, 2013. Tonight on the show we have Kaylin C. in the studio to talk about The Singing Bank, Truth or Consequences, a community opera event put on by Opera Bravissima and the Portland Hotel Society. Also, we have CITR's Christine Kim to talk about UBC production of Pride and Prejudice. I'll give you an update on the sexual offender plaguing our campus and review Puccini's Tosca. Hi, everyone. I'm your host for tonight, Sarah Lapsley. It's been a while since I've been in the studio, so it feels great to be back. Um, I just played Sloan, Many City Maniacs, and that's because the sun is in Scorpio. A lot of sexy people are born in the sign of Scorpio, and one of those people is Chris Murphy from Sloan, the bass player. His birthday's tomorrow, so happy birthday to Chris Murphy. Um, I'm excited. Just want to jump into it with Christine. She's here in the studio. Um, we've got some tickets to give away so uh, to the production she's going to be talking about and also to another show. Um, so please stay tuned, stay glued to your computers, be ready to email us or tweet us, um, and I'll be giving more details. But we are here to talk about a lovely thing, one of my favorite things, Pride and Prejudice, um, put on by the UBC Theatre. It's November 14th to 30th. Um, and it's playing at the Frederick Wood Theater. So, Christine, hi. I'm going to turn you on here. Hold on. Mic number three. Hi. Hi. So <laughs> tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do for CITR. And Sure. Um, my name is Christine, and I am a news correspondent for News 101 here at CITR. But um, I was given the opportunity by um, Deb Pickman, who um, who asked me if I wanted to be a theater correspondent and um, asked me if I wanted to um, give a little bit of a short intro on the <clears throat> on the uh, play productions that UBC Theater does throughout the year, um, and so that's why I'm here. I'm here to let you guys know more about what Pride and Prejudice um, is and how the production <laughs> what the production's all about. Yeah. So well. Have you, we were talking a bit earlier saying, have you seen the Colin Firth Pride and Prejudice, which I guess is, is it a TV movie in Britain or was it an actual film? Um, it's a TV series um, based on Pride and Prejudice and um, it's just crazy the amount of fans um, there are of Pride and Prejudice, um, like as I was saying, <laughs> there's a huge Colin Firth statue um, as Mr. Darcy in um, in London Lake in Britain, um, just in the middle of the lake, yeah. like it's just this huge statue. And <laughs> you showed me a picture on your phone, and it's like I was expecting something kind of classical, like in mm -hmm. marble. But no, it's this weird kind of paper mache looking Colin Firth rising out of the water. It's it's quite odd. You know, there's crazy um, you know fanatics for Pride and Prejudice, and I think that just really shows like how um, timeless this piece is and just how many fans there are. Um, and Driving these, women crazy yeah. since like 1850 or something. And these fans actually have a name and they're called J-Knights. Okay. Um, and so um, actually we hear there are going to be a few J-Knights at the opening, um, opening night, November 14th. So we're encouraging people to come wearing... Um, costumes of that era or as like a character in the book um, and e and um, just as a side note if you do come in your costumes um, for the opening night you're eligible to um, uh, book a ticket um, at student price which is ten dollars <laughs> so I'm that's coming pretty cheese, cheap. in a costume I'll be there <laughs> yeah you should <laughs> I'm a J-Knight well, I've seen uh, the I've seen it numerous times. The one with Kira Knightley. I'm not a huge Kira Knightley fan, mm -hmm. but oh, the actor Matthew something. Um, he is very hot, and it totally makes the film. And and when, you know they just I don't know. It's just a great story. You mm -hmm. know the family of all girls and the the nervous mother and um, you know the just this whole thing of having to marry off the girls and. They have this priggish cousin who's a pastor and tries to marry Kira Knightley. And yeah, it's a great story. So tell me more about the production at UBC. Yeah, um, for sure. So obviously the novel is um, 
it has a pretty, um, I guess you could say, a very lively storyline. Um, um, and the people, like the characters in it, um, it's not all... Um, it, it's not like all about serious things. Like there's a comedic aspect to it, and I think um, this production really emphasizes that liveliness and that um, comedic, um, those comedic aspects of the entire book. And um, just as you can't really necessarily um, recreate the entire book line by line because that would just be too long, um, this uh, Pride and Prejudice production is um, by John Jory, um, and John Jory. Um, is a really famous, um, I guess, producing director. And the way that he's recre recreated the play is, um, is really, really intentional in trying to keep it um, very original, um, but also kind of emphasizing that um, quality as if the audience is reading the book and the story in the book is coming to life through theater, through acting, through... Um, through the various like um, theatrical elements, you know, um, and so Lois Anderson, who is actually directing the play, and she's a graduate from UBC. Um, she's taken that and I guess like taken it, um, and just I guess taken it to a whole nother level. Um, the setting I got to see the setting yesterday actually, and it really really um, emphasizes that element of magic. Um, for the play and like bringing the story to life. Kind mm -hmm. of thing. <laughs> so what kind of things did they have in the set? Um, okay, I don't want to give out too much, okay. but um, the set, I would say, um, is not the traditional setting of the book. Um, so it's not um, traditionally like a house or like the setting backdrop as a... Ball. Yeah, or like, like yeah. a field. Um, it's much more, I guess... It's much more imaginative than that. Um, I know I'm being kind of elusive, but yeah. <laughs> I think if people come out and um, the moment that you do see the set, because the set's not going to change like um, change too much, um, just because too many scene changes, I guess, mm -hmm. wouldn't be um, would take expensive away. And yeah, and it's just kind of distracting. So I think the setting in and of itself um, really, really emphasizes like like I said, that element of magic in the play and bringing the story to life. Um, and there's a lot of detail in the set, too. Um, just with, just with um, the intricate designs on some of the um, props, and um, I got to see a lot of the work that goes into making all of the stage components and, like, the stage props. And um, it's actually a really, really... Um, it's... Um, a work-intensive process, mm -hmm. I think. Um, and I was talking to the stage director, and she told me that um, they started a month and a half ago building the set. Um, and just to see, like, um, some of the some of the changes that it's undergone and um, seeing how much of the set is has already been made um, is really, really cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that was a real treat. Yeah, so what are you looking forward to in particular? Like, what part of the story is appealing to you? Or um, I'm honestly really looking forward to seeing how the characters of the book, like Mr. Darcy and um, like the main character, how, how they're going to be portrayed through act, you know, how they're going to be portrayed through um, how the actors um, say the say their lines and um, say their um, perspective roles and how they like kind of uh, move on the stage and how they interact because um, whenever you're reading it um, in a book you have your own kind of um, image of the character and like the personality of the character um, but I guess just seeing that personified on stage I feel like we'll have like a completely different feel to it um, yeah so I'm really excited to see those characters come to life mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and I wonder what the appeal is, you know, that it's such an appealing story mm -hmm. still. I mean, it's just basically a romance, yet it still captures people. Mm -hmm. I guess it, uh, you know, a lot of it's about class too, right? That she was sort of from a lower class 
and considered vulgar, like one of the scenes in the movie that I've seen anyway, you know, he's sort of being hostile towards her because her mother is kind of classless and pushy and vulgar. Mm. And she's horribly insulted, you know. Um, So I guess that creates a lot of tension. But then in the end, it's just this sort of fairy tale thing where they go off into the sunset, which is a bit sucky, but (laughs) what are you going to do? And, you know, like when Jane Austen was writing her books, um, she was in that kind of like social hierarchy, that kind of era. Um, she actually published all of her books anonymously at first um, because it just wasn't socially acceptable for a woman um, to be an author. And so um, the first book that she published, which was Sense and Sensibility, um, the author was just referenced as by a lady. It didn't even like have her name on it. And even the original version of Pride and Prejudice um, it wasn't actually called Pride and Prejudice at the time either. It was called um, First Impressions. Hmm. So that just kind of shows that, like, um, obviously those elements, like those social, um, those social kind of con- that social context was prevalent in Jane Austen's time, but also like still resonates with um, people in today, like in today's modern context. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty. It's a pretty universal. I don't know, I guess, theme. Yeah. And it's so cool to see how, like, people keep recreating it. Like, um, I've heard so many recreations of Pride and Prejudice, like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Um, <laughs> Wait a minute. Pride and this Prejudice is totally and Cats. This totally new to me. And, like, in Cats? Or not in Cats, and Cats. Like, right. these books have been taken and applied to a whole bunch of different themes. Um, so it's just, it, it's big. Um yeah. Especially because um, this entire year is actually celebrating the 200th anniversary of the publication of Pride and Prejudice. Okay. So it's even a more special time. <laughs> special time of, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I want to go see it. Like, there's some great dialogue in the movie that I've seen anyway. Really, you know, um, you know, tightly written dialogue and... Yeah, just a strong story. You know, he's crusty at the beginning and mysterious and kind of rude and she hates him and then they don't hate each other anymore and yeah, that's great. And and so anything else about the actors? So they're all students from the UBC theater program? Um, yep, BFA acting students. Um, and I would say that I've seen actually the Caucasian Chalk Circle, which was the production before Pride and Prejudice. Um, during the theater season, and it's just their ability to act. I think it really just, it's such a treat to watch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, I can't give enough praise um, for them. And um, I'm actually really excited to see this recreation because I've never seen Pride and Prejudice on stage. I've seen right. movies of it, um, like the the one with Keira Knightley in it. But, um, yeah, I've never seen it on theater, and I think it's, it's sort of a challenging... Um, mission to undertake to like get direct quotes because you can't quote the entire book you have to like pick and choose right and so yeah I'm really excited to see how um John Jory worked with that and how I guess Lois took that script and then um directed it um for UBC theater and yeah seeing how the BFA acting students take that too so (laughs) are you going to go in in costume in historical costume I should I definitely (laughs) should (laughs) I don't have a lot of um, Victorian-era clothing, but... (laughs) I'm sure there'll be a few brave souls, but most people probably won't. I mean, yeah, where do you get this stuff? But, um, no, that's really cool. So tell me about the tickets. We talked about giving away some tickets. Hello, alert, everybody. (laughs) Tickets, giveaway, Pride and Prejudice, UBC Theater. Yeah, um, you know, like, yeah, I just really want to encourage, I guess, a lot of UBC students to come out and watch this um, because it's honestly going to be such an awesome production. Um, So what, so if you want two free tickets to the show, um, you have to first post up this fun fact, um, which is that, um, this year is the 200th anniversary of the publication of Pride and Prejudice. Um, so if you just post up that fun fact of the anniversary um, year onto the UBC Theater's um, Facebook page, which is Theater at UBC. Um, so just go on Facebook um, and on the search, um, search box, just write in Theater at UBC. Um, and then on that page, if you just post up um, 
fun fact, 200th anniversary of um, Pride and Prejudice. Um, whoever posts that up first will get the two free tickets. Um, so do that as fast as you can, maybe right now. <laughs> do it right now. So just to reiterate, all you have to do is go to the UBC Theatre Facebook page. Mm-hmm. So you can go into the search box, Theatre at UBC Find it, and on that page, type in the fun fact, which is this is the 200th year anniversary of Pride and Prejudice, and you can get tickets. Two Two tickets, and I will also, on the Arts Report Facebook page, post that as well um, to alert people. So you don't want to miss out on this fantastic opportunity. And, Christine, you're going to come back on the 27th. Yeah, uh, to do a review of it. Um, But honestly, if um, you guys want more information about this play, about the director, about um, anything, um, you can go to the UBC Theatre website, and that's www.theatre.ubc.ca. And so could you just remind us of the event details before we go? Yeah, um, for sure. So it's going to be running from November 14th to 30th. Um, Students get in for $10. You can buy your tickets at the box office at the Freddie um, Freddie Wood Theater. Um, and if you're planning to come to opening night, please come in costume. <laughs> um, Do because, it. Yeah, because then you could be um, you could just get in even if you're not a student for ten dollars. Um, what else is there? Uh, curtains are at seven thirty um, from November fourteenth to thirtieth, and um, yeah, I think that's about it. <laughs> okay, wonderful. Thank you, Christine. Now I'm going to play some messages, some public service announcements, and then I'm going to talk about the singing bank, truth or consequences. And I'm supposed to have Kaylin C. here in the studio, um, but I'm not going to lie, I'm terrified she's not here yet. Um, She actually came yesterday, um, thinking that it was yesterday. I'm expecting her, but if she's not here then I'm just going to talk and play music until 6 o'clock. So let us go to these important messages, and I will be right back with you on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the Arts Report. I'm Sarah Lapsley. Talk soon. Hi, my name's Matthew. When I first got back from a military tour in Afghanistan, any time I heard a siren or even a car alarm, I'd lose it completely. I would turn into a wild man, screaming, waving my arms. People would yell at me, shut up you crazy, get a job, would ya? Well, I didn't go out and get a job. I got help instead. Now, I'm in a clean and safe apartment. I have friends and helpers who understand me. I landed a decent job, but I gotta admit, I still don't like car alarms or sirens. I used to think mental illness was a death sentence. I got life instead. This message was produced by Columbian Centre Society and Radio Malaspina in British Columbia. The AIDS Vancouver Helpline is here to help. Open from 9 to 4, Monday to Friday, the Helpline answers questions about HIV and safer sex. Call to find medical support in your area without giving your name. Run by volunteers, the Helpline is one of the many programs from AIDS Vancouver combating the HIV epidemic in the Lower Mainland. While not medical professionals, our volunteers answer your questions confidentially and anonymously. The helpline number is 604-696-4666 or contact us at aidsvancouver.org. My name is David Scott. I play wide receiver for the University of British Columbia football team and I'm here to discuss the Be More Than a Bystander program. Myself and a few other players were lucky enough to work alongside the BC Lions and EVA, the Ending Violence Association, to support this cause. The main goal of the Be More Than a Bystander initiative is to increase awareness of domestic violence against women. For more information on the cause, please visit endingviolence.org. I was a prisoner. I was a prisoner. prisoner. Cocaine addiction. Cocaine took my drink. My drink. It made me lie, steal. Cocaine took my will, my soul. And all I wanted was more cocaine, more cocaine. Cocaine Anonymous gave me freedom and saved my life. If you got a problem with cocaine, pick up the phone. We're here to help. Contact Cocaine Anonymous toll-free by calling 866-662-8255. 
8300 or find them online at ca-bc.ca. Quite often when we chant, we do it with other people. So what do you think? Chanting as a group? I think that was something that just went ahead. Oh, it's on auto DJ. Okay. Manual DJ. I'm Sarah Lapsley. I'm back on the Arts Report. I'm a little discombobulated because my guest is not here. So I'm just going to talk and maybe she'll come. So I have lots to say. I want to preempt our regular arts programming for a few minutes to talk about the sexual assaults that have been terrifying um, and upsetting everyone on campus. So I'm just going to bring up the latest RCMP bulletin. So um, recent events. So there's been four to five stranger assaults since September, late August, September until now. And there's also a sexual assault in April that they've linked to this same perpetrator. So they're saying six altogether have occurred. They've occurred typically late at night, women walking alone. Um, This guy comes out. um, In one case, he was hiding in the stairwell of a building in one of the residences. Um, And they've just put out a composite sketch of this guy. So um, Caucasian with slightly, slightly darker or olive skin tone, mid to late 20s or even 30s, thin build. 5'8 to 6'2, longer, rounder chin and face with straight nose, broad forehead, short, short dark hair. Um, and they're just, let's see what the press release further has to say. Um, they're continuing to investigate six sexual assaults, um, and they've got them each identified here April 19th, May 19th, September 28th, October 13th, October 19th, and October 27th. They appear to be related committed by the same uh, suspect. So they're urging people to contact with any and all information that may assist in identifying this suspect. Um, And so you can call the tip line if you have anything, no matter how insignificant, 778-290-5291. And it's interesting because I've been telling people, and I posted on my Facebook about it, I guess it would have been October 2nd, Um, I think the last time I broadcast was October 16th, and it was two weeks before that. I had parked my car in the parkade and came to do the show and um, then realized I had forgotten my um, wallet at home. And so I had no money, no cards, like no bank card, um, and I was totally hooped. So I phoned my friend, my best friend in the world, Todd Fancy, and he drove up and lent me some cash so I could get my car out and get back home and he met me at this little mall you know where the McDonald's is on University sort of boulevard and I was walking back to the parkade by myself it was dark and I was walking in this sort of grassy area there was people around but they were far far away Um, and I was walking by myself and out of nowhere this guy is just suddenly there my hackles kind of went up and he was sort of making a beeline for me walking and I'm I'm already a fast walker and he was walking fast approaching me um and he had on and I was sort of wary because I knew that these attacks had you know were going on and he he fit this description about that height around six feet very thin he was wearing a black windbreaker and it was tied up, right? And, and in this composite sketch, he's wearing a, a hoodie, um, but it was tied up really tight around his face. Um, he did have sort of the same features, slim, narrow, kind of high cheekbones, slim, narrow face. I thought darker skin, but it was very, very dark. Um, uh, jeans or dark pants. And I just didn't like him near me. Um, and I really listen to myself when, um, I get those bad vibes. So I, I just, I let him come up and then I just really abruptly dropped my pace right back behind him. So just as he got near me, I just, I sort of, I just 
dropped right back suddenly. So then he was like in front of me. And so he either had to keep walking or turn around to confront me. And he kind of stalled. And I kind of zipped off to uh, the left and kind of headed towards where people were in the bus loop. And I really picked up the pace. So I was quite fleet footed and I felt quite proud of myself. I didn't get nervous or anything. I was just like, man, I'm going to lose you. And so I, I headed zigzagged off towards my car. But I didn't give it too much thought after that until more information started coming about the composite sketches and people were like um, saying to me, you know, oh, you should phone that in. That's a tip. And I was like, really? I don't know. Um, But now that they're saying, you know, no information is too insignificant, I'm thinking about it. And one thing that went around was people were saying, uh, some of the media was saying, well, people were wearing skirts. The women that were attacked were wearing skirts. And people took this badly they were saying well what does that have to do with anything and it sort of smacks of blaming the victim because they're wearing skirts or something but I was thinking no that's actually a pattern an interesting pattern if all the victims were wearing skirts and I think that's probably more what they're getting at and I was wearing a skirt that night and I've been looking at different types of sexual offenders and how we label or categorize sexual offenders and I don't have it here in front of me, but, you know, there's sort of the angry types or the predatory types. I mean, this guy's predatory, but he's also very impulsive and he's he's weak. He doesn't want to get caught and he will desist quite easily, it sounds like, from these reports. So if someone fights or yells or even flaps their arm in one case, he will run away. In my case, if it was the guy, all I had to do was kind of surprise him a little bit and, and walk faster. And that was enough, like... You know, so he doesn't want to get caught and he seems to have quieted down his activities since everybody's been on the lookout. Nevertheless, um, Patrick Carnes, who's a expert in sex uh, addiction and, and sexual problematic behavior, would characterize this as what he would say a level three behavior. So um, it would be, you know, rape, stalking type behaviors. And I think at this point, this guy is probably just wanting to go for a quick grab. That's probably what he wants because he could overpower somebody, but he hasn't yet. Um, but it could escalate. His behavior could escalate over time. So, I mean, the utmost caution must be taken. Um, and I'm going to tell you how to do that. Um And, you know, women have talked to me about how they feel really violated and, um, you know, angry at society and angry at men. And I'm just kind of urging people, look, this is, you know, we do have these kind of problems in our society. But overall, we're talking about one guy that's like a sick individual. Just stay practical. Protect yourself. We'll get this person. I mean, hopefully they'll get some treatment for this person because, you know, they might give him a jail sentence of a couple of years. But unless he gets treatment... He's just going to get out um, and do it again. So I'm going to give you some tips. But I thought I'd replay, especially since my guest isn't here, I thought I'd replay an interview that I did um, for the Fringe Festival. And it didn't air it as part of the regular Arts Report programming, but it was about a play that's now over. Um, But it was written by a lawyer, Michael Doherty, and he's sort of a social justice lawyer. And the play that he wrote was about Athena, the goddess of war, um, and about um, in this play Athena sort of teaches women how to defend themselves um, against violence and so and he also teaches judo and the woman who played Athena in this one woman play was also a judo um, student so we had an interesting chat and I thought it was kind of pertinent um, talking about questions of violence and is you know, is retribution, you know, a good idea? How do we defend ourselves? So I thought I'd play that. Then I'm going to talk a little bit bit more about some strategies um, and resources on campus to manage this and see if I can track down my guest. If not, we'll move on to talking about Tosca and Jonathan Darlington. But Here's my interview with Michael Doherty. He's a lawyer, and he's talking about his play, Athena, Self-Defense for Women. The goddess Athena is educating these new souls. They're, they're about to be incarnated for the first time, and she has 
diverted them from the normal cosmic stream uh, uh, because uh, she, reflecting on her thousands of, of years of existence, uh, is very unhappy with how she has seen women treated uh, throughout the, throughout that history, and so she decides that the most single most important thing that that she can teach these new souls that are about to be incarnated as girls and then women is unarmed combat. Normally, when new souls come into existence, that they're uh, blank slates; they don't know anything. But she decided that that she would like to try to make a difference. She's feeling frustrated by the fact that although she's a god, that she just doesn't seem to have uh, to have done much or very much that's positive. So, with uh, contrary to to whatever cosmic laws are are in effect, without letting the other gods know, she has yes, yeah, she has diverted these souls and she's teaching them about self-defense. And she's only got a little bit of time, um, and uh, and so she's she's she has boiled it down to five essential principles that she thinks that the that these souls should know so that when they go to earth they can um, uh, defend themselves it invites the the viewer to 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 think about a number of questions so um number one is, is athena right is this is this something that that girls and women should know is it important that, to know self-defense because her perspective of the character in the play is a lot of the things that she's thinking about are horrible events, that, but that happened thousands of years ago and, or hundreds of years ago. And so, what, you know, one question that, that it invites the reader to think about really is, well, is that right? Are are things better now than than they they were? Um, like, is is Athena's perspective flawed? Um, have things gotten better? Uh, other questions. When is violence justified, if ever? Uh, and is it the, is it the responsibility of the individual to be able to defend themselves, or or have we, as a society, decided that we're going to abdicate that responsibility and hand it over to the state? That is, that it's the, the role of of uh, the the police and the justice system to uh, uh, to to to, de- to defend people. You know, Athena is one of the most important of the. Uh, Greek gods. Uh, she is the god of wisdom, um, and but she's also the god of righteous violence. So as compared to Ares, her, her brother, who's just the god of, of war and of violence, she's the god of righteous violence. And I think for a lot of, a lot of people, they would think, well, is there such a thing? Is, is, are, is there a time when violence is justified? Um, it's... Uh, so, you know, for the, for those of us in the martial arts, we those are questions we think about a lot. Um, and also for uh, for Athena, she has, um, as I say, you know, thousands of years of of frustration looking at women's experiences, and um, you know, p- partly for me, of course, that also reflects you know my life experiences. And um, I'm I'm a, a lawyer, and I'm uh, in my mid fifties, and you know, it's it's um, so a lot of my perspectives were formed uh, more than 30 years ago. When, frankly, the ro- role of women in society was, I think, much uh, it was it was much more difficult. Uh, a lot of th- things that were uh, people would say and do uh, 30 years ago, or even 25 years ago, when I started as a lawyer. Uh, you know, if anybody, it would be shocking today to people. Like they, they, they would think that those attitudes, were, uh, you know, couldn't have existed within recent memory. So, you know, my uh, perspective is that is that um, you know, for women and for those of us who are concerned about women's rights and the role of women in society, that things have gotten much better. But you know, that doesn't mean that uh, that. It, any of us can take it easy. We, have, we, I think, we always have to be thinking about about um, issues or, or, uh, that exist around um, the, the role of women in our society. Hi, we're back on CITR 101.9 FM. That was Michael Doherty talking about his production now long over um, about Athena, self defense for women, but just sort of touching on you know, some issues that are at front of mind for everybody right now in terms of protecting ourselves and the need for self-defense. And, and um, yeah, I would say learn self-defense. Um, you know, I was just talking to someone today who had been mugged, um, a guy who had been mugged by some other guys. So we do need to be vigilant 
um, and learn how to protect ourselves and doing a lot of reading, you know, Sun and Scorpio, I'm kind of doing Scorpio things like reading about serial killers and violence and um, just enjoying sort of digging into that kind of mindset. And so if you think about people like this, they're very predatory. So part of that is they're looking for, for vulnerable people. Um, and so you need to minimize uh, your vulnerability. And actually, it's interesting, Matt Granlin, the host of the Australian Canadian Music Show, just posted something on Facebook, which is an article from uh, the university uh, about a study from the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. Um, and they conducted three experiments to investigate whether women can change their walking style to make themselves seem less vulnerable. Um, and so they concluded that to reduce their perceived vulnerability, individuals must adopt the walking style associated with low vulnerability. Um, and so here are the key features you can work on in your walking. And I must say that when I was walking, I typically walk like this, but um, if it was in fact the perpetrator that I had a little run in with, um, this is how I was walking and and uh, it worked. So lengthen your stride, swing your arms more, walk with more energy, make your walk bouncier. Like you can just take off at any second, get out of the way, walk faster. There's nothing better than fast walking. Um, these signals either suggest you can escape from an attack, long stride, fast walk, or defend yourself with high energy. Of course, it's not the only element influencing your vulnerability. I mean, for example, don't wear headphones. Um, pay attention to your surroundings. And yeah, it sucks. It's really unfortunate that we have to watch out for other human beings. We should be safe around other human beings. And I've been reflecting on this a lot. I went for a beautiful walk around Burnaby Lake by myself on the afternoon, Monday afternoon. And um, it would have been a perfect walk, except it's quite deserted and you're always on guard. And you just, you can never really let your guard down as a woman walking alone. Um, and that's hard. Like, you know, you're doing okay, you're forgetting, enjoying the beautiful birds and the fresh air. And then suddenly, you know, there's a guy coming down the path and you're like sizing this guy up. Like, what's he wearing? What does he look like? You know, and the instant relief when you realize, oh, he's got a dog or, oh, he's with a woman, like it puts you at ease. Um, but we do need those skills to defend ourselves if necessary. Now, what UBC is suggesting and the RCMP is suggesting, don't walk alone at night, watch out for each other, ask your friend. You know, I'm even nervous just walking back to the um, carport car park thing tonight use ams safe walk so there's numbers um translink shuttles or campus security services so um ams safe walk 604-822-5355 available to students faculty and staff so you can just phone them and they'll walk you to where you want to go um trust your instincts if you feel in danger or witness suspicious activity call 911 immediately they're really stepping up security around campus it's very embarrassing and we were talking about some stuff going around on facebook yesterday um let's see if i can pull this up here it's a satirical article so all of this stuff has come on the heels of um the Souter UBC School of Business and their rape chants just brought horrible publicity to UBC. And there was a satirical article that went around and a lot of people I knew posted it without realizing it was satirical, um, but it was quite amusing. And it the article says, Souter Dean fires student body. <laughs> so it's like this fake article where the dean says, in September, I spoke pub publicly about how disappointed I was in Souter students for participating in Frosh Week chants, which, among other things, made light of rape. In an attempt to salvage something good out of this mess, I made a public promise that we would put $250,000 towards sexual assault counseling and education services. Um, and they had to have a student ref... I don't know if this part is true, um, but that they had to approve it through a student referendum, this funding. But they failed the referendum. They didn't want that. Um, so he says he fires all the Souter School of Business students. Well, obviously, that's satirical. It's not true. You can't fire students because they're paying to be there. Um, but it's just, you know, it's unfortunate. Uh, there's a lot of bad blood going around um, in regards to this um, sexual predator and the rape chants. So it's a tough year. So watch out for yourself. I think that's all I have to say.
on that. I still don't know about my guest, but I'm going to play a bit of music. And you know what? I can fill this time. No problem. I want to play just a little bit of an angry woman as a shout out to the sexual predator. And that angry woman is Diamanda Galas. She's like this modern opera singer. Um, and she's very intense, very beautiful, but kind of bloody. She's like a dark goddess from hell. And it's kind of Halloween-y. This song is called Let Us Praise the Masters of Slow Death. So I'm just going to play a few minutes and I'm going to come back and talk about a real opera, Tosca, that I went to see on Halloween. Here she is. Diamanda Galas, let us praise the masters of slow death. What sympathy in death discloses? We who fast are here are very much alive and watch enough you get the idea now i don't encourage retribution by the way um but that's diamanda galas so yeah let's move on that's an unfortunate thing to have to preempt arts programming to talk about ubc sexual assaults but i'll be back next week november 13th and we'll talk about it again and maybe i can even get somebody on to talk about it i asked my friend a forensic psychologist to do it and he's like no he wouldn't do it so thanks a lot um but see if I can get somebody on, maybe Dr. Stephen Hart, to talk about uh, kind of a profile of what this guy might be like. Now, let's talk about opera, real opera. It's very exciting. I've been looking forward to Tosca for a long, long time, knowing it was coming, knowing it was going to be directed by Jonathan Darlington. Now, it's kind of a running joke on the Arts Report that I like have this sick crush on Jonathan Darlington. And um, I was in Victoria, I guess, couple weekends ago uh, for my niece's birthday and I was waiting in 
the car with my mom in the line, you know, the long line outside waiting for the boat. And there was a car in front of us and there were three guys standing outside talking and one of them was really hot and he looked pretty familiar. And I was going, man, that guy's hot. Like, he looks familiar to me. And I just kind of went back to my phone, you know, and looked up again. Hmm, like, I wonder if I know that person, you know? And then I looked up a third time and I was like, oh my God, that's Jonathan Darlington. My mom's like, who? I'm like, hello, the director of the Vancouver Opera. She's like, oh God. So then I started kind of fluttering and tweeting and um, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to talk to him if I see him on the ferry in the gift shop. And then so I I went to the gift shop when the boat pulled out and there he was in the gift shop. This is hilarious, reading a Michael and Dante book. So I, I was like so nervous, like, and I went up and I was like, oh, hello, are you Jonathan Darlington? Um, and he's like, yes, you know, how did you know? And I was like, well, <laughs> I, I'm like, well, I do, you know, the arts report and I had done some research on you. And he was so nice and so charming. Like he just, and then he's like, well, and I was like, well, maybe I could do an interview with you sometime. And, and then he said, well, why don't I, why don't I take your email and I'll email you and then you'll have it. Um, and so just in that moment, he asked for my email. It was like, I'd kind of died and gone to heaven. Um, so he took my email and uh, then, you know, I didn't uh, hear from him until yesterday. And then he emailed his, the subject line. And then it was like in my inbox, Jonathan Darlington and the subject line, as promised, my email address. So that was kind of the highlight of my life. Now I'm just looking at his website. He is the music director of Vancouver Opera. Um, and his passionate yet refined approach to music making has done much to increase the popularity and artistic quality of both orchestras. Um, he is very charismatic. Um, and it's kind of killing me because I love astrology and on his Wikipedia entry, it doesn't have a date of birth, only the year 1956. Um, and so I just, I don't know what sign it, he is, which drives me insane. I think he's a Leo or as Leo moon or rising. He's very, just oozes that kind of warm heart generosity of a Leo. Um, he's very dynamic and charismatic without being off-putting. And, you know, he was so nice and charming when we met. And he's like, yes, I live in Paris. And I sort of showed my real backwoods kind of provincial streak and I was like oh wow you live in Paris like you know I live in Vancouver haven't barely left in 20 years um but he was charming nevertheless and I thought wow he must really like me because he's so nice and charming but I was chatting with this elderly lady uh at the Vancouver Opera um from the Opera Guild of Volunteer Organization and I was saying oh my god I ran into Jonathan Darlington on the ferry and she's like oh I went to pick him up from the airport you know, because they'll drive around the artists. And she said he was so nice and charming. And I was like, oh, he's like that to everybody. But good for him. Um, and if you watch him on YouTube, he's very um, expressive and very, very passionate about uh, conducting. So I'm very excited. I just emailed him back and said I would interview him um, when he comes in the spring to do Don Carlos. Um, but if you watch him, I spent a lot of task at just watching him <laughs> conduct the orchestra because he is like a dancer kind of. Um, and it's amazing to see how he brings in the different instruments. And it's a very complex score. I mean, it's Tosca's quite traditional in a sense, but a very complex music some of it's very light some of it's heavy and kind of Wagnerian but um I don't know I'm just rambling with delight because I got to meet Jonathan Darlington it was like the universe is like hey you know <laughs> you're having like the longest dry spell here's just a little vision of Jonathan Darlington to keep you going due to an overall dearth of Jonathan's but Tosca was great. It's a great Halloween opera. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about that. Now, I wanted to also play something, too. I don't know if I'll have time. Um, Puccini was the author. He wrote this work, premiered in 1900, and it's based on a play, um, and that's what makes it a good opera. Like, if I uh, compared it to other operas I've seen, 
which are very bombastic, big sets, giant choruses. It gets a bit tiresome. This had a kind of a contained feel. There were three three acts, and they all took place, the first one in the church, the second one in a parlor or salon, and the third one sort of at the site of an execution. Um, And so... The di- there wasn't a lot of action, which was actually nice because you got to focus on the singing. Um, and so the, the plot is essentially um, that this t- woman, Tosca, she's a singer. She's very jealous and she has a lover um, and she comes to visit him in the chapel where he's doing a painting. He's working on a painting. And prior to her visit a political prisoner had escaped and was seeking refuge in the church. And I guess he knew this, the, the painter and the painter had said, well, you can stay at my villa. So um, Tosca comes in and the painter's like hiding the fact that he's sort of, you know, um, the painter is hiding the fact he's got this political prisoner under his wing and she's very jealous. So a lot of it is her singing about her jealousy. And, and so that's, really fun and intense and the next scene um the painter's gotten caught with the political prisoner and so tosca goes to see scarpia and scarpia is sort of the main character he's the police chief and he's big and evil and he um is going to execute the painter for harboring the political fugitive and and tries to convince her well if she sleeps with him he'll let um her lover the painter go so she agrees um, to sleep with him if he gives her a safe conduct along with the painter, safe conduct out of Rome. And he says, well, look, we have to do a mock execution because I can't lose face. So he tells her, go to the execution of the painter, but we'll put blanks in the guns. And then when it looks like he's dead, the soldiers go away. Then you, you and he can get up and run away. So she goes to sleep with him, but then she stabs him instead after she has the safe conduct paper. So then she goes to visit her lover as he's about to be executed. And this is by the third scene. And she says, look, they're going to shoot you with blanks. So just hang tight, pretend you're dead, and then we'll run away. So he's like, great. So then the soldiers come and they shoot him. But I guess I wasn't clear whether it was a deliberate betrayal or just a misunderstanding but the guns didn't have blanks so they shoot him he falls dead she waits for the soldiers to leave and then goes to retrieve um her lover and he's dead he's been shot so it just ends tragically then she kills herself and it's great because she jumps off the sort of rampart and you know there's like a mattress you know on the other end to catch her um but the music was just really wonderful and I loved the sets like the salon in Paris and it was it was very classic and contained um which was nice after seeing big productions like the magic flute and um I was quite pleased at the end I thought oh god like at the, after the execution I thought we're gonna have a big chorus scene a big bombastic chorus scene and I was kind of not into it and it didn't happen I was like yay Puccini thank you um, but there's lots more great stuff coming up at the opera, uh, Vancouver Opera. The next one, I think I raised it here. The next one is um, Albert Albert Herring by Benjamin Britten. Mm, it's a modern one. Music aficionados would say, you know, it's a very cool thing. I'm kind of like, mm, I like classic opera. I'll wait for Jonathan Darlington to come back from Paris and Europe where he will be over the winter. Um, very married. To a glorious wife who doesn't mind his perpetual absences. And I was like, yeah, sure. Away all the time? Fine. Because what are you going to do? Have no Jonathan Darlington? Just put up with the absences. No problem. Now, I want to talk about Burnaby, the Burnaby Art Gallery. And I meant to go to, they had a show. Um, and I wanted to go on Monday, but it turns out they were closed. It's Rembrandt. Storms and Bright Skies and Inner Realm. So it's organized by the National Gallery of Canada. Three centuries of Dutch landscapes. So um, there's paintings and sketches. Some of the greatest Dutch artists, including Jan van Goyen, Jacob van Ruysdael, and Rembrandt. Um, and so they have a combination of uh, pictures, um, portraits rather, of people and landscapes. Um, so it's a great collection of very classic, uh, priceless art. But what was even more interesting to me, so I, like I wanted to go from 
like the beginning of when I heard about the show. It rents till November 17th, so I will have to, a chance to see it. Um, Burnaby Art Gallery. But uh, then when I looked into the Burnaby Art Gallery, it was even more interesting. It turns out it's a, like a historic building on Deer Lake um, near Burnaby City Hall. And it's housed in the Sepperly House. And so the Sepperly House... Um, has a long and sordid history. The mansion was built in 1909 by Henry Sepperly, a wealthy and powerful insurance and real estate tycoon. And the house was christened Fair Acres, and it was a retirement home for himself and his second wife, who she passed away there. Uh, she was a sensitive soul who loved children and the peace of her Burnaby mansion. When she died, she left the house to her husband, because it was in her name, with the provision that if it was ever sold, the proceeds were to go to a children's playground in Stanley Park. Well, her husband ignored that request, kept the money for himself, and many people feel this is the root of the haunting of the building. So staff are saying they've seen all these um, apparitions in the house. So it um, so after it was sold by the owners, it went to the city of Vancouver and was a tuberculosis ward of the Vancouver General Hospital. This would have been in the 30s. Um, so one can only imagine the pain and misery felt in the walls of the Burnaby Mansion. Uh, then the tuberculosis ward was moved, and it became home to a Benedictine order of monks. So they were okay. At this point, it takes a drastic turn for the worse, according to this article. The mansion was bought by William Frank Franklin Wolsey, who was wanted throughout the United States on a string of charges for bigamy, extortion, and assault. He called himself Archbishop John I, heading a cult known as the Temple of the More Abundant Life. The cult involved bizarre and violent practices ranging from bigamy to incest. It also involved the ritual abuse of many young children in a school setting. Wolseley was allowed to continue these practices until he was exposed in 1960. He then disappeared to the U.S., leaving in his wake an angry public and many unanswered questions. No kidding. That is so weird. I have to look into that more. Um, so then it was sort of ignored for a while, um, and eventually the city of Burnaby took over the building, opening the gallery in 1967. There were many reports of a woman in a white, flowing, old-fashioned dress who would walk through the walls. People thought this was Grace Sepperly, the original owner, and she always brought uh, with her this apparition, feelings of peace and tranquility, but sadness. Uh, also, workmen reported a figure of a man in an old-fashioned dress who would stand at the top of the main staircase. At times, the sound of children crying could be heard from the unused third floor. One employee who worked in a second-floor office often heard the sound of footsteps and furniture scraping the floor above her head. At first, she gave no thought to the sounds and assumed someone lived on the third floor. It wasn't until several months later she realized that the third floor was unoccupied. The basement also seems to have a ghost. Um, an employee named Legasse was working late one night, removing paintings from their frames with a hammer and screwdriver, and every time he would set down his tools and turn his back, his tools would mysteriously be hung up on the wall several feet away. Um and doors were locking and opening and so on. So um, it's been written about in Ghost Stories of British Columbia by Joanne Christensen. So I'm going to go see the Rembrandt show at the Burnaby Art Gallery. I'm going to keep my spider senses open, see if I can pick up any ghosts, and I'll report back. Next week, I'm also going to do a Remembrance Day thing. This hour's gone fast, so my guest didn't come, didn't text. But I will nevertheless tell you about the event that you don't want to miss. Tomorrow night, Opera Bravissima presents The Singing Bank, Truth or Consequences. Join us for a special night of opera music Thursday, November 7th at Pigeon Park Savings. That's a special bank um, that's uh, geared to cater to clients uh, with low income on the downtown east side. It's a free show, free food, chili, um, and it's put on by the Portland Hotel Society. Um, and so I imagine there's like a social justice aspect uh, to it to raise awareness. I don't know if it's related um, to the truth or reconciliation event. I don't think so. But too bad we didn't get to find more out about that. It's a few minutes after six. I'm going to go. But I want to leave you. It is Scorpio time. Sexy drummers are born. Scorpios. And the first of that series, 
that I will talk about is Ian Brown. He's having a birthday party this Sunday night at the Emerald. I don't think I can go. I'll be on Main Island with my family. But uh, his band, No Sinner, is hot, hot, hot. This is their song, Love is a Madness. I'm going to leave you with that. This is Sarah Lapsley on the Arts Report. Come back next week, November 13th, for our special Remembrance Day event. And stay tuned for some cool music after. Goodbye. Talk soon. Did you do really well in a first or second year course? Want to make a difference in the UBC community and school communities around the world? Join Students Offering Support, or SOS, and become a tutor today. Math, accounting, economics, psychology, engineering courses, French and Spanish, statistics, and more. If you aced it, Students Offering Support wants you to help other students ace it too. Check out UBCStudentsOfferingSupport.com for more information. My best scratch